Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at a passage there that we want everybody to be able to see. So our guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back, get their attention if you need a Bible. And those are marked at 1 Peter chapter 1, so you won't have to fumble around to find it. Please keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of Scripture and bring that back with you if you're inclined to return, and we hope that you will. We're going to be going over the next many weeks and few months through the book of 1 Peter together. When I was in eighth grade, I started at a new high school, junior high. I had attended kindergarten through seventh grade at an elementary school in our city, and I had a good experience there. But in our town, eighth grade meant moving to the high school because eCourse did not have a middle school. My older brothers had attended the high school, and it did not go well for them. So my mom, two years a widow at that point, found a Christian school for me to attend. Now, we all know the apprehension that we have when we go into a new situation of whatever type, but perhaps especially in junior high. Whereas before I walked two blocks to my school with my friends, now I had to be transported to another town with no friends awaiting my arrival. I rode there that first day nervous but with a bit of confidence because... As part of the registration process that summer, I had to take an entrance test. When I got word that I was accepted, I took that to mean that I had passed the test, and so I assumed that that meant not everybody does so, and so I started with a feeling of privilege. I belong to something that not everybody gets into. Now, nobody has ever told me this, but in retrospect, I think the test was just to determine what grade level I'm supposed to be in. And rather than determining whether I would be admitted at all or not, but in my ignorance I felt privileged and it helped me as I went into an otherwise unsettling situation. And in addition to that sense of privilege at being admitted, my adjustment was aided in another way as well, because I made some friends very early on. In God's good providence, they assigned lockers by last name. And so Brown was next to Carrico. So I met our church's treasurer and deacon chairman that first week of that first year, and we've been arguing for nearly 40 years since that time. (laughs) I also met another classmate who had escaped the hood in e-course. We discovered that we had actually competed against each other in the citywide spelling bee just two years earlier. Neither of us had won, but I made it a point to tell Freya Jacoby Enright that I had lasted longer than than she did. Now, she disputes this, and there is no video evidence. So you're just going to have to decide who it is you want to believe. But it will be settled one day on the big screen at the judgment seat. But by God's grace and by God's grace alone, things went well for me there. I graduated. I met lifelong friends. I was introduced to Kimmy, who would later become my wife, and I became familiar with the seminary that I would later attend, all as a result of going into that new situation at a new school in eighth grade. But it could have been very different. I knew a young man who started the same school the following year, his seventh grade year, 
And he struggled immediately. He was not able to connect to the kids in his class. The academic requirements were too difficult. He lasted only that one year, attended another school for a few years after, and made friends who were of no help to him, and he got into a lot of trouble along the way. By the sheer determination of his mom, he did eventually get his GED, but he struggled throughout high school and has struggled in the decades since. A new situation, a new challenge, a new trial can make us very vulnerable as it can take many different roads. And which way it goes depends on a number of factors, the most important of which is how I view myself in that particular situation, and that in turn depends on how I view God and His relation to me. In a situation in which I'm in a new place with little or no relationships, I can begin, can I not, to feel alone and aimless and adrift. And since we all live life out of a sense of identity. If that's the way I view myself in my circumstances, then I'm going to live accordingly, down and perhaps even out, because no one knows. I know no one, and no one cares to know. And this is why things like support groups can be so helpful, because they tell us we're not alone in our struggle. You're not the only one going through this particular thing, whether grief or divorce, for instance. The support group says, I'm not alone. But hear this, it does not necessarily convince me that I'm not aimless and adrift. That is, is my struggle attached to any larger purpose? And am I attached to any larger story? You see, my friends in the support group can identify with what is happening to me but they cannot explain why. Only God can do that. And so the question for you, like for me, as you go back and you think about the experiences that God has allowed you to go through, whether through school or family or work history or whatever it is, the question is, what's your story? Everybody has a story. And everybody has a past. But only those who see their story and their past within the context of God's larger story can have the security of knowing that they're not alone, that they're not aimless, and that they are not adrift, despite the difficulties along the way. Now, I've asked you to turn to 1 Peter, because it's a book that's written to people who are suffering. And they're suffering in various ways according to the end of verse 6 in chapter 1. And one of those ways may be persecution for their stand as Christians. But their varied trials apparently include more mundane things like empl employment problems, as we're going to see when we get into chapter 2 and verse 18, or family problems, as we're going to see as we look at the roles of husbands and wives beginning in chapter 3. But no matter the particular situation, how it is that we will handle it, how it is that they would handle it, depends entirely on what you believe about yourself, and that in turn depends on what you believe about God. And so at the outset, Peter reminds us that if we're Christians, here's who we are. We are privileged people. And that's why in chapter 1 and verse 1, he begins it by saying, you to whom I'm writing are, notice chapter 1, verse 1, you are elect exiles. 
God's, notice, God's elect exiles. And then, beginning in verse 3, begins to show us what kind of privileged people we are. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You, Peter is saying, are a privileged people because of your relationship with Christ. And so you are not alone in your situation, even though estranged in the world, exiles, verse 1, You are not alone now. You will never be alone because you belong to Christ and you are His privileged people. And the trials that we undergo, Peter is going to show them, are not aimless. But rather, as we saw last week, if you were with us, they're producing something, according to verse 6. Notice, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Those difficult circumstances are producing, says Peter, in keeping with what our brother James says in the book of James. Those circumstances are producing stronger faith, and are in turn pointing us to the end result of it all, our ultimate salvation. And that's why, notice what verse 9 says. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's why I say at the top of the outline that was inserted in your program, will you all take a look at that? That even in the midst of suffering, Christians are a privileged people. We're a privileged people who, according to verses 6 through 9, are developing in the present a productive faith. And it leads to the highest prize, that being salvation. Now, when I refer to salvation as a prize, I don't want you to think of it as a reward that I get because of my or your meritorious work. The Bible teaches very clearly that we are saved by grace through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, and it's not by works so that no one can boast. So the Bible is very clear about that throughout, but the faith that saves us results in the desire and the power to obey God so that salvation can be viewed as a goal, a prize toward which we strive. And that's why you have passages in your New Testament like 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. But they do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. And Paul, who wrote this, says, I run to get the prize. He said elsewhere, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So the salvation that you're participating in and that you're moving ever closer to, as proven by your strength strength and faith in the midst of the trials that God allows into your life, that salvation story goes back millennia. 
And your story fits into the larger story. So that you're not only not alone and not aimless, you are also not adrift in the midst of your difficult circumstances. And now Peter is going to remind us of that. That your story fits into a much larger story that started long before you. And that's why verse 10 says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Throughout Scripture, as God comforts His people in the midst of what to them looks like chaos, He reminds them of His work in the past, and that's what Peter is now doing here. In the midst of the suffering that can cause you to think that I'm alone and that I am aimless in what's going on and that I am ultimately adrift, I'm not anchored to anything from the past going anywhere into the future. In the midst of that, Peter does what God does throughout Scripture. In the first part of your Bible, we call the Old Testament. God would remind the children of Israel, I am the Lord your God who, do you all remember what he would say over and over? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And now Peter is saying in the midst of your suffering, you too need to look to the past. And you need to look to the cross. And God's care and love and concern for you shown on the cross. And all that led up to the cross as well. And that's why I say in your outline with Peter from verses 10 through 12, that our salvation was first of all predicted by the prophets, predicted by the prophets in verse 10. Again, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. The salvation that you enjoy if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, even in the midst of your difficulty, has you anchored to something absolutely solid and unbreakable that goes back millennia and beyond to eternity past. And the prophets who spoke predicted this time that would come that you are now on the back side of and you can look back on what they predicted looking forward to. Now when did they predict this? Who predicted it? Well, the prophets, plural, says Peter. And among those prophets are men like Moses. And people like David and Micah and Isaiah. And I want to take some time to show you some of those predictions from the prophets in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. The very first of these starts in the third chapter of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, as God is meeting out the consequences for the entrance of sin into his otherwise good world. And he gives consequences to Adam and to Eve. And then he speaks to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, says God, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's a prophecy, a prediction of Jesus who will come and he will do battle with the serpent, that is the devil, that is Satan. And he will defeat him on the cross 
as he has now done. But this one who would come, predicted by God in the third chapter of the Bible, is one who's going to come through a particular lineage, through a particular line. God calls out in Genesis chapter 12 a man named Abraham, and he says of Abraham, through your seed all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And God makes that line, that lineage, even more specific as we move on in the revelation that is the Bible. Genesis chapter 49 tells us that through one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and one of those 12 sons is Judah. And notice what Genesis 49 says, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So the one that is to come that is going to crush the head of the serpent is one who's going to come through the tribe of Judah. Moses goes on to say in the book of Deuteronomy, predicting that there will be one who God will send that will be like Moses, and we find later greater than Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, among you from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So this is what he's going to be like. This is what he's going to do. This is the tribe through which he is going to descend. And where is he going to be born? The prophets in the first part of your Bible predict that as well. And they set up the story in this, to me, most interesting way. You have this little four-chapter book nestled as the seventh book in your Old Testament, the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth tells the story of a famine in the land of Israel that takes a family from a town called Bethlehem to a town called Moab. And the famine comes to Moab as well. The family returns to Bethlehem. And in the course of that, a gal named Ruth, who was from Moab, a pagan nation, marries a man from the town of Bethlehem named Boaz. And notice what Ruth chapter 4 tells us. Boaz of Bethlehem became the father of someone named Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Now this is why that's important, because this one who will be the seed that will crush the head of the serpent, that will be the ascendant of Abraham, who will come through the tribe of Judah, is also going to be born in Bethlehem, and he is going to be in the line specifically of David. And God brought that about through this pagan woman marrying this guy Boaz, who has a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. And that is why Bethlehem is the city of David. And the prophet Micah said, Later, Bethlehem, though you are small among among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And so this is where he will be born and what he will do and the tribe through which he will come. And David has already been set up as one of the ancestors of the human life of Jesus. And Isaiah speaks of that connection between David and the coming Messiah when he says in Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, that is David's father. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt 
faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And so here in Isaiah chapter 11, this one who's going to come, and he's going to be through the line of of David, this one is going to establish a kingdom, and this one is going to rule that kingdom with righteousness and with justice. And yet, the prophets also give us another picture, another profile of this one who would come, this one who is predicted. This very same prophet, Isaiah, says in chapter 53, he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, how do you put those together? How do you take Isaiah 11, he's going to come and he's going to establish a kingdom and he's going to rule with a rod of iron and with justice and with equity. And yet at the same time, this very same prophet says in another chapter, he's going to be killed for the sins, the transgression of his people. Who is this guy? How are you going to be able to put that together if you're you're reading that? Just to show you what a difficult time these prophets had figuring it out. Notice again in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. The prophets, Peter says, searched intently and with the greatest care. In other words, they were really trying hard to figure it out. And what were they trying to figure out? Notice verse 11. The time and the circumstances when the prediction was made of the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. How do we put together the fact that he will be king in all his glory and yet at the same time he will suffer and die for the sins of his people? People tried for centuries to figure that out. How do you put those things together? Some rabbis determined that there were going to be actually two messiahs, believe it or not. One who would die, one who would be king. They were trying to figure it out. So how did they put it together? And that's what Peter's alluding to when he says they looked with the greatest care, intensely trying to determine the times and the circumstances that the Spirit of Christ was pointing to for the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And we see this in the life of Jesus as well. I want to show you something that Jesus did in his earthly ministry that shows you just how it would be very possible for the prophets to not be able to put together those times and those circumstances. We've seen Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 53. Here's another famous prophecy prediction from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, if you can tell on there, the day of vengeance of our God is sort of in bold. Can you tell that? <laughs> I tried to highlight it. We're using new software. That's the only way I knew how to highlight it. But the day of vengeance of our God. Notice that Isaiah has all of these things that are going to be true of the one who will come. He's going to preach good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness. And he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Isaiah says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, I just want you to keep that in mind, the day of vengeance of our God. Just please keep that in mind. Because hundreds of years later, 
The Messiah has come. And he goes to the town in which he grew up, Nazareth. And he goes to a synagogue and he walks into that synagogue and he unrolls a scroll. We're going to see it in just a moment from Luke chapter 4. And he goes to the place of the prophet Isaiah and he reads from this very passage. And notice what the Bible tells us. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written. Now, he unrolls it. They don't have chapters and verses, so I can't say, nobody can say, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. You just unroll it. You have to know your scrolls pretty well. Jesus knows the scroll because he's the ultimate author of the scroll. And he goes right to the place. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the the passage tells us, and then He rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, and He sat down. (laughs) Now, do you all remember and the day of vengeance of our God? And Jesus just stops. And do you know why? Because he has come that first time to fulfill that first portion of Isaiah 61 and the first part of verse 2. And he will fulfill the second part of verse 2 when he returns again and the day of vengeance of our God. But Isaiah doesn't know when that's going to happen. To him, it all looks like it's going to happen at exactly the same time. He's going to come one time. And he's going to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And the vengeance of our God will be poured out upon all those who oppose him. But Jesus says at the end of the passage in Luke, as the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the rest of that scripture will be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. And so here are the prophets hundreds of years earlier. And they are seeking to know the times and the circumstances that the prophets were pointing to when they spoke of the sufferings, but also the glories that would follow. They did not know as we now know that this would take place in two phases. A first coming and a second coming. And even Jesus' first followers were confused then by this. The Bible tells us in Matthew 16, Jesus explained to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus is talking about his death and his sufferings that the prophets predicted hundreds of years before, but also now the glories that would follow. And how are the glories going to follow? Because I'm going to be alive again so that I can come again and I can then establish my kingdom. And those who I've purchased with my suffering and death will be part of that kingdom with me. Jesus says in Luke 24, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Again, Luke 24, Jesus told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And this is not only 
what the prophets predicted in the past as they were looking intently and with the greatest care, trying to figure out the time and circumstances, the suffering and the glories, but it's also what the apostles preached, the first followers of Jesus. Acts chapter 26, the prophets said what would happen, that is, in the first part of the Bible, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And so this salvation, concerning this salvation, verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 1, the prophets predicted. But notice secondly in your outline is that the prophets predicted. And so your suffering readers of Peter, your suffering people in Community Bible Church, your suffering is attached to something much larger than your current circumstances. Your story is part of the much larger story, and that's what Peter is reminding them of. And this salvation that attaches us to the largest of all stories was predicted by the prophets, but secondly, prompted by the Spirit. Prompted by the Spirit. Verse 11 says, They were trying to figure out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ was pointing them. Now, when it says the Spirit of Christ, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, in verse 12, the gospel has come to you by the, the Holy Spirit. And when Peter says the Spirit of Christ, referring to the Holy Spirit, and in verse 11 says it's the same Spirit that inspired the apostles in the New Testament, he's connecting now the Old Testament and the New Testament as one story given by one God through one source, God the Holy Spirit. And so this larger story into which all of our individual stories connects is prompted by the Spirit. Peter wrote a second letter in your Bible, Second Peter. And in the first chapter of that letter, he says this, Prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Same message in the New Testament that you have in the Old Testament. But now, because we are on the backside of the person and work of Jesus, having come to earth 2,000 years ago, we see the way the time and the circumstances fit together, but they did not. But all of it has been prompted by one and the same, God the Holy Spirit. Same message. And it's the same message, thirdly, I say in your outline, that has been proclaimed by the apostles. Predicted by the prophets prompted by the Holy Spirit. And then the apostles are sent out by Jesus to proclaim the good news, the gospel message. And it is this same message that they proclaim. According to verse 12, it was revealed to those prophets, they were not serving themselves, but that this was meant for you. When they spoke of the things, now notice this, that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you. Who is it that has preached the gospel to these first readers? People like Peter, the first followers of Jesus, the apostles. And so this message that was predicted in the Old Testament by the prophets, same message prompted, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is then proclaimed by the apostles in the New Testament. We see it in this first Christian sermon ever preached. 
on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And none other than this same Peter who wrote First and Second Peter for us stands up on the day of Pentecost to explain the events of the pouring out of the Spirit, the beginning of the church, and the start of the mission that Jesus has given to his followers, and that includes you and me. But as Peter is giving that explanation, he gives the centrality of this message in verses 22 and 23 of Acts 2. The prophets said what would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. We've seen that in Acts 26, now Acts chapter 2, and Peter's message. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now let me just stop there for a moment. Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. It's been predicted it has always been God's plan. And yet these wicked men are responsible for their wickedness. That's the sovereignty of our God. <laughs> that He plans what will happen. And He holds responsible men and women for their evil deeds as He uses their desire for evil to accomplish His ultimately good purposes. Bear that in mind as you suffer. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and his foreknowledge. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And this Jesus is going to return. The glories that would follow. So this message that is the larger story into which your story fits and how you then need to see your suffering as it strengthens your faith, the faith that is ultimately going to get, come to fruition in our salvation. You need to see then that suffering as part of this larger story, not isolated, not aimless, not adrift. And so Peter tells us it was predicted by the prophets and prompted by the Spirit. It was proclaimed by the apostles in the New Testament. And lastly, he says at the end verse 12. It was pondered by the angels. Even angels long to look into these things. You know the Bible gives hints in other places that you have the celestial beings, the angels, who look with amazement at what God is doing through Jesus Christ in the human race. They look with amazement because they are, as it were, sort of on the outside looking in. They are not part of this redemption that Jesus has purchased with his blood on our behalf. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul who wrote Ephesians chapter 3 talks about the marvel of this thing called the church, where through the blood of Jesus now, the wall that divided Jew and Gentile has been broken down, and this one body now exists. And it says that the church is marveled at by authorities in the heavenly realms as they look at what Jesus is doing in the lives of God's people in this thing called the church. Now, friends, if the angels marvel at our salvation, how much more should we wonder at the fact that we are the children of God and in the family of God? This salvation, that makes our story part of the larger story, predicted by the prophets and prompted 
by the Spirit. It was proclaimed by the apostles, pondered by the angels. I'd like to spend our remaining time making some application now of that truth to you and me in the sufferings and trials that God allows into our lives. The fact that these things were predicted in the first part of your Bible shows us that God's words can be completely trusted. In the midst of your suffering, remember this. Everything God says, He has done or He will do. There is not a single promise, prediction of God that He has either not fulfilled or is not in the process of fulfilling. In the midst of your suffering, your story fits into a story that will come to its appointed end. God has predicted it, and He has brought it to fruition, and He is continuing to move it toward its appointed end, and you fit into that, and your trials and your suffering fit into that as your faith is strengthened and results ultimately in our rescue, our deliverance, our salvation. The Old Testament prophecies show us God's words can be trusted. They show us as well that Jesus' suffering was not an accident, but an absolute necessity in order to bring us the grace of God. And your sufferings as well need to be viewed the same way. The sufferings that God's people endure are appointed by the sovereign hand of God to bring His grace into our lives. They are not an accident. They are not random. What is it that we learn not only about our our sufferings and God's words, but what do we learn about God in general? from the fact that this salvation is the larger story into which everything else in our lives fits, we learn that He's in control. He knows the future and He absolutely controls it. We learn that He's a God who tells us of His plans and what He is doing and what it is that He wants from us. He does not leave us in the dark as we grope through our lives in all the difficulty that attends it. We learn about our God that He is not a God who acts quickly. He can act in a moment, but His plans methodically move forward according to His timetable. He doesn't feel compelled to do everything in a moment. As a matter of fact, God is taking the time that He has ordained, that He needs, in order to make His glory fully known in His world. We learn that He is a God who is faithful, His plans do not change over time. And we learn about our God as well that He is a God of mercy. Because Peter tells us in verse 6, our suffering is for a little while. It will not go on forever. And so friends, you need to see yourself in the story. And the only way you will be able to see yourself in the larger story is for you to know more and more about the story. And you can't just learn the story in my 45 minutes every Sunday and the 10 minutes you were listening to my 45 minutes. And this is why we offer classes for you to learn the Word of God so you know the story and so that you can see yourself in that larger story. It requires an ever-growing knowledge of the Bible. 
and the whole story, not just the things that are immediately helpful to me. Listen, dear friends, some of us easily develop the habit of listening and reading the Word of God in only a way that says, I've got a current circumstance going on. Let me look up a passage that I think directly affects that. And the truth is, there's not a verse that directly affects everything that's going on in your life. There's a story into which your story fits. And so memorize Scripture. Be saturated with Scripture. It requires discipline of the mind and prioritization of the things we allow into the mind. Hear this. You will never gain eternal hope by watching TV. You'll gain eternal hope as you know the Word of God. And you know the story of the Word of God and you begin to see, ah, this is the God I serve. This is the God I serve in the midst of the circumstance, in the midst of those long nights at the hospital, in the midst of that diagnosis, in the midst of not knowing where the next dollar is going to come from, in the midst of all of it. This is the God I serve. And He is still on the throne and His promises will all come true. You will not find eternal hope on TV. You will not find it on the Internet. And lastly, let me say, dear friend, if you are struggling, as many of us do, as all of us do, in the midst of our suffering with believing the promises of God, there are some things that are underlying that. One of them is that you have undoubtedly devalued your salvation. You don't see it as the precious gift that it is. If I don't have it now, it must not be valuable, we think. But the truth is you own it now. You just haven't realized it all now. It is already, just not yet. And the Bible teaches that. Or you've devalued your salvation, or you think you deserve better than you've gotten. Now, I know this is going to sound harsh. But from a biblical standpoint, anything that we get better than hell is more than we deserve. And the fact that you are sitting here right now is evidence of God's mercy in your life. So friend, if you're doubting God, you are undoubtedly devaluing salvation. You're surprised at suffering because you think you deserve better. Our sins should tell us otherwise. And you're failing to believe in the goodness and the power of God in the midst of your circumstance. And that's all for one who is a believer. For an unbeliever, your suffering fits into the story too, but in a completely different way. The suffering of the unbeliever is empty and aimless and will go on forever. But a good God has offered you a way of escape, deliverance, salvation, rescue from that in the person and work of Jesus. Now I say in your take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, the greatness of our salvation. And friends, do you understand it's, your salvation is great? If you understand that, then it should motivate us to persevere in our suffering. So we're going to pray. We're going to have a time for us to bow before the Lord and ask the Lord to help us see Him in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our story within the larger story.
Perhaps confession and seeking of forgiveness is in order because we fail to believe God's goodness and power, thinking we deserve more. And if you're an unbeliever, if you came into this room today and you have not availed yourself of the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue that comes only through the message of the cross that has Jesus as its central figure, God the Son, who came in accordance with the predictions of the prophets to die on your behalf, though he had no sin. He is now alive and coming again, executing his plan exactly according to his calendar. You need to bow before him. Acknowledge him as your Savior and Lord. Realizing you're a sinner, recognizing Jesus died for your sin. You repent. Repent means, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. How do you do that? You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to be in a particular place. You can do it right in the seat you are in right now. From your heart to God, you express your sinful condition, your need of His forgiveness, and that you want to follow Him with your life. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You for this look into Your Word. And the reminder that our salvation is wondrous, amazing, it is great. We thank you, Lord, that the circumstances of our lives as believers are completely known to you. And that they are part of your cosmic plan for your world. That our small story fits into your larger story. Help us to see our place there because we are immersed in your word and we see the plan and how it is laid out. And we see your character and the unfolding of your plan through your faithful character. Lord, we pray for any who came into this room without a relationship with you through Jesus. They too go through suffering and trials. They try to put it together in their minds, but they don't have access to the truth that is in Jesus, the illumination of your Spirit who gave the message that turns the light on so that they can say, yes, I see that, and yes, I need that, and yes, I believe that. And so we ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, to move on their minds and hearts in this sacred moment and draw them to yourself and draw them to the Savior who gave his life for them and who is alive and coming again. Lord God, help us this week to bring praise to your name in the midst of the circumstances you have allowed us to undergo. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.